Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. Today we're talking about performing under pressure, something that all of us struggle with at certain times in our lives. But years in Formula One have taught me some tips, tricks and methods to enable us to keep standards high no matter what life throws at us. And today I'm going to pass those lessons on to you. Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. But you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Thank you so much to everybody that's listened, downloaded, or watched the podcast on YouTube in recent weeks, and especially... Thank you to those people that have taken a moment to share it around with their friends, to write to me in whatever format to say thank you or to tell me how you're enjoying the podcast, what you're taking from it, how you've managed to take some lessons from it and employ those in your own daily lives. That's the whole point of me doing this, that I've spent years working inside the highest level of motorsport in Formula One and I've learned so much And it was only recently that I realised that so many of those lessons are not just specific to Formula One. They are absolutely applicable to our everyday lives, to our businesses, to our companies, to school, to teaching our children. These are things that I now use every single day. And the point of this podcast is that I'm finding ways to pass those lessons on to you. If you're taking that, if you're enjoying that, if you're finding some benefit from it, then that is making the whole thing worthwhile. And those people that let me know honestly gives me such a boost. So thank you very much. Uh, I need to say a big thank you as ever to Omologato Watches. Um, Omologato, if you don't know, they're not one of the huge, big Swiss corporate watch brands. This is a brand that's small but growing, run by essentially one man, who a man who's become a friend of mine in recent years, but also a man who is so passionate about all things cars and motorsport based, it's infectious. And that passion is what lies behind every one of the beautiful timepieces that they produce. Every one of them inspired by a famous racing car throughout history or a racing circuit or an event that you and I, I'm sure, will be familiar with in certain ways. Uh, they're a brand that's definitely growing throughout the world of motorsports. So if you're not yet familiar, dive over to omelagatowatches.com at the end of this and take a a look. I'm sure you'll find something you like and actually just be prepared because I know a number of people now where this has become an addiction. Because these watches don't cost thousands of pounds, once you get in there, be prepared that you'll fall in love with something and you may well end up buying it. (laughs) Uh, Just a little word to the the wise there. But look, let me know. Go over to omelagatowatches.com at some point. Check out the stuff. Let me know what you think. I think they're brilliant, but I'd love to know your thoughts on that too. And they are partnering with us on this journey. So thank you very much to Omelagato. Um, Okay, let's get into it. We're talking about performing under pressure today. Something that I guess when you think about Formula One, I guess you think is obvious. You think about the pressure that uh, the drivers must be under when they sit on the, on the grid waiting for the start lights to go out or they're sitting in the garage waiting for that all-important qualifying lap. I mean, I know from my perspective of being part of a pit stop crew, the pressure that those guys are under when it comes to delivering that incredible change of tyres in just a couple of seconds, the pressure's enormous at times. It can be crippling at times. I've described in some detail about my first ever pit stop in an earlier episode of this podcast and the pressure that I felt in that moment, how debilitating it was for me because I wasn't prepared for it. What I'm going to go on to describe and explain to you today is how Formula One eventually did prepare me for it. On that very first day, I was very poorly prepared for that first pit stop. The pressure took me by surprise and it overwhelmed me to the point where I actually struggled to do my job in that first moment. And it was only over the coming years after that that F1 and certainly my team at McLaren realised or appreciated the need to prepare people to cope with pressure, to deal with the stresses of particular roles. And these are things that I absolutely now live my life by and they help me as I've gone through the rest of my days long since leaving the world of Formula One. 
There are also things that I have no doubt will be able to help you. And that's the point of today's episode. So let's think about pressure. When we think about the kind of pressures that people like that face, those people in the public eye on these big global stages, I guess those pressures are related to people watching, the number of people watching, what's at stake. If you really think about pressure, the pressure that those people face, whether it's a Formula One driver sat on the grid or a pit stop mechanic about to burst out the garage, those pressures are exactly the same pressures that everybody faces every single day. Because the kinds of pressures that affect us doing our job or performing to a certain level boil down to almost mostly three things. They're people face financial pressures across the world, people face time pressures, and people face pressures that affect performance, performance-related pressures. Now, those three categories, if we boil it down to those on a very basic level, cover pretty much all of the pressures that people are worried about facing. A Formula One driver is sitting on the grid waiting for those lights to go out, or he's facing the pressure of a millions and millions of people watching that could affect his performance. He has to perform because people are watching. It's a performance-related pressure. Pit stop crews are trying to deliver a pit stop under immense time pressure, as well as that performance-related pressure of all those people watching too. So the pressures are exactly the same. If you go to a job interview, you feel pressure to deliver the best version of yourself in that very short amount of time that you've got to get yourself across to prospective employer. Those pressures are real and left unchecked, they can mean that you don't deliver your best performance on that particular day, you don't deliver the best version of yourself and somehow you might fail as a result of that. The pressures are exactly the same no matter what the role, it's just the situation that those pressures arise from that of course can be very different. And so if the pressures boil down to three very basic things, and ultimately we're talking about performance on this podcast, we're talking about being able to perform at the highest level in whatever field that is, if we focus down onto that one, there are some things that we can do as individuals or as teams or as groups to prepare ourselves better for that. Now, as I said earlier, my first ever pit stop, I mean, I got away with it, but it was actually a bit of a disastrous pit stop. And from a personal perspective, I was a mess. I was shaking like a leaf. I was terrified. My judgment was clouded. I wasn't thinking straight because the pressure that I suddenly faced or felt and the way that I interpreted that pressure got to a point where it clouded everything that else, everything that I was thinking. I couldn't focus on what was actually a relatively straightforward job of doing that pit stop. In truth, that pit stop entails, I was putting the nose on for those who didn't watch the earlier episode, uh, that pit stop entailed me picking up the nose cone, walking over to the front of the Formula One car where someone had already removed the first one, popping it onto four pins on the chassis where someone would then do up the catches and I then walk away. That's the action involved in that pit stop. It's really very simple. The reason, the truth is any one of you could do that. And when I talk about it in those terms, it seems really easy. So what's the difference when it comes to doing it for real? The difference is the pressure that I put on myself thinking about the millions of people watching, thinking about the consequences of potentially it going wrong and what impact it might have on our Grand Prix, on our race. Those are all things that are just going on in my mind because the actual action that I have to go through is exactly the same action that I would do if absolutely no one was watching. The thing that I need to practice in pit stop practices that we do is that action of picking up the nose cone, walking over, popping it onto the four pins on the front of the chassis, waiting for the catches to be done up and then walking away. It really is that simple. So it's, it's a mental state that clouds our judgment. It's a mental interpretation of the pressure that we're facing that is the thing that actually ends up debilitating us and causing us on so many occasions to fail because we're perceived as buckling under pressure. Now, we've all been through those scenarios, whether it's a pit stop for me, whether it's going to a job interview, whether it's your first day on the job, whether it's being late for work, whatever it might be, there are certain scenarios in our life that trigger this mental reaction where we suddenly pile the pressure on in our mind and suddenly our minds get twisted into this scenario where we feel like 
we can no longer perform in whatever it is we're doing because the stresses of the pressure have overtaken everything else that we would normally be doing in this situation. Now over time, McLaren, and McLaren led this, began to recognise that this human performance side of what we were doing in Formula One was equally, if not more, important than the technical side of spending so much time and energy and money on getting the technologies around a Formula One car working the best we could. We had spent years developing the cars to eke out tenths of a second per lap. And of course, that's absolutely crucial. But when I first started in Formula One, and my first pit stop, by the way, is a perfect example of this, we had very much overlooked, and this wasn't just McLaren, this was the industry, had very much overlooked the human performance side of what was going into any given Grand Prix result. People had begun to look, of course, at the driver human performance element. Physical training regimes were, had been operating on a, on a driver level. Drivers were starting to get their own personal trainers to encourage that process, to start to introduce some science behind that physical training regime, to motivate the driver to go training, have somebody there to crack the whip and make sure they were constantly pushing to make themselves physically better, physically more ready for the big moments when they came. But at McLaren, we really did lead the way in starting to understand that it wasn't just about the technical side and it wasn't even just about the physical training side. And actually, it wasn't even just about the drivers. Formula One is perhaps the biggest team sport in the world. And yet we have so much focus on these two guys that drive the cars. And it took some time before people began to realise that actually there are a whole bunch of humans, hundreds, if not thousands at every team, working away behind the scenes. Without every one of those people being able to deliver to the very highest standards, sometimes under great pressure, we can't be the best. We can't deliver the ultimate version of our own Formula One team. We can't get the best result that we need. And so, under the leadership of the great, great Aki Hintzer, Dr. Aki Hintzer, um, a good friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, but a visionary man who transformed not only McLaren by creating a programme called the McLaren Lab, that I'll explain more about in a moment, but he transformed the industry of Formula One. In later years, he went on to form an institution that still to this day operates throughout the world of motorsport and Formula One and indeed business, looking at all of this human performance science. But back then it was groundbreaking. So he started this programme called McLaren Lab inside our organisation. We were the only people doing it back then. And this was looking at every single element of how the human side of a Formula One team could become better, could maximise what we had. The people were perhaps our biggest resource, and yet we weren't really tapping into them to the level we should have been. Dr. Aki changed that. And the way that this worked was we went through a series of things in creating facilities at the McLaren factory to training facilities. We created staff dedicated to this program, looking at human performance. It began with the drivers, but very quickly it moved over to the pit stop crew and ultimately everybody who worked in the Formula One team, looking at the mental strengths and weaknesses of everybody, looking at ways to improve those weaknesses and tap into those strengths, looking at what we could get from people that maybe was falling outside of maybe their job title, their job role. Did they have some other strength or some other experience or something else that we could tap into to make our Formula One team stronger? And of course, a huge part very quickly of all of this that we, we realised was important was this idea of dealing with stress, dealing with pressure, coping with pressurised situations. Something that, as I touched on the, in the beginning, in Formula One terms, is prevalent, isn't it? Across every event, pressurised situations, whether it's delivering something on time because the schedule will not move, whether it's bringing the next update to a car because the race team are desperate for it because they're in a championship fight, you need to deliver everything right first time. There's pressure right there. Whether it's the drivers on the grid, the pit stop crew being ready to burst out of the garage and deliver 
a pit stop that's as close to perfection as is possible at exactly the moment we need to. Those things are absolutely critical to the end result, and yet we'd been overlooking them. And so when we began to realise that pressures and dealing with pressures was such an important part of this, we began to look at ways that we could improve that. And some of the, the first things that I remember us doing, which we hadn't really done to the same level before, was thinking about what created those pressurised moments for us. And this is something that's applicable to everybody in life. If we think about what is it in our life that's going to create those moments that we know we're going to start to feel a bit stressed, we're going to start to get a bit hot and sweaty, heart rate's going to start to go up, we're going to clam up, we maybe will start to cloud our judgment. Because when we have our judgment clouded, we react badly to things, we make poor decisions. And when we make poor decisions, it leads to poor performance. So what is it that triggers those poor reactions. Now, if you think about yourself, I mean, I think about myself, I've become good at, at dealing with this over the years, but there's still, you know, I'm far from perfect and there are still things that trigger that stress for me. For me, the biggest one is being late. I hate, it's my bugbear, I hate being late. I will try everything to make sure that I'm punctual and be on time. And it's something I pride myself on. But of course, there are occasions when I can't help, something happens and I'm late. And in those moments, that's when I clam up, that's when I get stressed, when my heart rate starts to go and I start to worry and I start to panic and I start to think the end of the world is coming. So for me, I know that's gonna be one of my triggers. So if you think about what your triggers are, what triggers those stressful moments for you, and there are various ones all the way through any given day or on any week at work or month at work or whether it's in your family environment, is it the children doing something, saying something? Is it your other half? We've all got something that winds us up about the people in our families that we live with or that we're close to. Those triggers, if we can identify them, spend time working out what they are, identify them, recognise them, accept that they are actually our triggers and they will lead to this emotional response that develops into a stressful situation. Once we know what they are, we can start to think about how we mitigate against those. And in Formula One terms, the way we began doing this was in terms of a pit stop, because that's the bit that affected us most. Of course, one of the worst case scenarios for us in a pit stop was that something went wrong. So we had to look at what were those things? What were the things that could mean that we might not have this perfect two second or three second as it was back then pit stop? Well, there are certain things like the driver could overshoot the marks in the pit stop box. He could go long or he could pull up short. When we're all set and perfectly prepared for the driver stopping on those marks, that's how we're going to deliver our perfect pit stop. If he stops short or he goes long, we're into a world of pain. What do we do? In the, in the old days when we started this, people panicked, people rushed around, people knocked into each other. We had all sorts of chaos happening to recover from the situation. The heart rates absolutely went up. Yes, we clammed up. It became massively stressful in that moment. My first ever pit stop was hugely stressful because I was mentally completely unprepared for it. I'd been through the motions of going through the physical practice, but I'd done nothing to prepare myself for the pressures that I would face. Because back then we weren't thinking about those things. So when we started to look at this through the McLaren Lab program, one of the things we looked at was how we can prepare for the things that we know might go wrong and might trigger these stressful moments. For example, in practice, we began to practice scenarios where the driver would come in long or short, missing his marks. Sounds really simple, sounds really obvious thing to do, but back then we weren't really thinking along those lines. So we set up a training regime where randomly, but very deliberately, we would overshoot the car on certain occasions and we would practice how we would deal with that scenario. Not by scrabbling around and pushing people out of the way and desperately trying to get to your new position, but by knowing exactly what you would do, where everybody would step to, where you would move to, what you would do with your equipment in that moment. And we would practice that over and over and over again until it became as much of a muscle memory situation as the perfect pit stop scenario. We practiced for failure. So when that failure happened, we didn't need to make any decisions that might be clouded with cloudy judgment. 
We didn't need to revert back to our mind being able to think clearly in a situation which was definitely going to be stressful because the decision was already made and practiced for. And so we just reverted to that muscle memory situation. When the trigger happened, we kicked in naturally, subconsciously into the actions that we needed to do to recover. It took away the need for decision-making. And if you go back to what I said earlier about cloudy judgment, stressful situations, clouding the mind, losing focus, leading to poor decisions and that leading to poor performance, we've removed the element in that situation for needing to make a decision. The decision was made long before the situation even occurred. Now that's one tiny little example. We did the same thing with things like pit stop equipment failures, a gun failure. What do we do when a gun fails? What do we do when the jack fails and the car falls on the floor? What do we do if the car comes in with a, a puncher and the car is so low that we can't get the jack under the front wing? We try to think of every possible scenario that could lead to a stressful or intensely high pressured situation, which could then lead on to us having to make decisions in that moment that could lead on to poor decisions and poor performance. And by removing as many of those, by preparing for as many of those as we could, we began to become, we began to get better in those situations when they happened. The same thing went for a driver. What happens when you make a poor start? What happens if the car goes into anti-stall on the grid? What happens if you get a warning light flash up as you're rolling into your grid slot? We went through every single one of those tiny little detailed scenarios and tried to prepare a solution for if and when it happened. Many of them never ever happened in a real life situation, but we practiced for them nonetheless. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I believe we can prepare for today. Because if we go through a process like this in our own daily lives, if we apply those things to what we do or what we face on a daily basis, we can break it down, simplify it, and therefore be better prepared when those inevitable failures happen, when those high pressure moments test us, when the inevitable stresses and strains of our daily lives come along and put us to that test. If you think about the big moments in your life that perhaps trigger you, what are the things, for me it's being late, but what is it for you? What are the things that you know you've faced over your days that have become stressful? Is it because you have a fear of those intense moments like a job interview? Are you terrified when you go into a job interview? If it's a scenario like that, that's one of your biggest fears, that's one of the moments where you feel like you clam up and you buckle and you can't possibly give your best version of yourself in what's actually a really important moment to do just that. Well, if you know that that is the moment, if you know that there are certain triggers in that situation, maybe you can start to prepare for those. And it might be as simple as going through a process of trying to understand Maybe what's the scariest question that that interviewer can ask you? What could be the most awkward situation where you might feel underprepared and not have a valid answer that might portray you in the best possible light? Could it be something really difficult like, why should I give you this job? That's always an awkward question because you have to feel like you've got to big yourself up. You've got to sing your own praises. Many people find that hard to do under pressure practice for it. There must be reasons why you are going for that job and you feel, even if just internally, deep down, something that you find hard to externalise, deep down, what are those reasons? Why is it that you genuinely believe you're right for that role? Why should that person give you that job? Practice it with someone at home where you might not feel the same sort of pressure. Practice it in the mirror where you may not feel that pressure. Because if you practice that answer to that question or others that you may predict that you'll face, that you might think could be the triggers that you'll find difficult to accept or to, to get the best out of yourself under those conditions. Practice going over that scenario over and over. It'll feel crazy doing that to yourself in a mirror or asking your partner at home to sit there and listen to you go over this time and time again. But it's building that repetition to the point where when it happens in real life, you'll be far better prepared. You won't have to make the decision about what you're going to say in that moment. You can revert back to 
the preparations that you've made to get that answer out in the best and clearest way possible. And yeah, it may not come out perfectly the same way that you did it in front of the mirror, but you're taking away a big part of the decision process for which many people clam up and struggle to even make the decision when it matters. Maybe it's like me, you hate being late. And in my situation, that is my trigger. So when I'm going to something like a meeting that I have to be there on time or something that's a big moment for me, a speech that I'm going to deliver at an event, anything that needs me to be at a certain place at a certain time, it's as simple for me as trying to think about the worst case scenario. Of course, traffic is something that's very difficult to predict, but it's something that we know can happen. So factor in a bit of time for traffic. Maybe I start to think about alternate routes. So if there's an accident on a certain road that I was gonna take, is there an alternative way that I could go? Have that in my mind so that I no longer have to be stressed about it when it happens. Obviously, I factor in a bit of time in case of something like a puncture. Again, something random, something that's very difficult for me to control, but I know is a possibility. And I know that if that happened, I'd start to get stressed about it. I'd feel the pressure mounting on me, wondering whether I could still get to my interview, my meeting, whatever it is, on time. So I factor that in. And it drives my family crazy because when I'm starting to prepare to leave for a certain thing that we've got to get to, and I want to leave way ahead of time, my wife doesn't have that same trigger when it comes to being late. That's not one of her biggest stresses. There are plenty of others that trigger her, but it's not that one. And so she finds that more difficult to understand than I do. But that's the thing about these things. They're all perfectly individual scenarios. And that's why only you, only we, can figure out what we need to do in terms of preparation to try and alleviate those stresses and those pressures when we know they could come along at any moment, but we know what they are to a large extent. If we can take away even just a chunk of those that we can prepare for, there may still be others that of course come along randomly out the blue that we haven't prepared for. But by genuinely building up preparation over time, days, weeks, months, years, generally getting yourself into a situation where you're removing a huge chunk of the stress from some of those scenarios that you know could be the triggers for you, you start to become better at it anyway. I now have this situation in my life where, yeah, being late is still a trigger for me. It's still something that raises my heart rate, my blood pressure a little bit, it starts to get me a bit stressed. But I now have this mechanism where I can very quickly understand that, okay, I'm late. Maybe I've woken up late. Maybe I missed my alarm. I wake up, instead of having an absolute all-out panic, I've got the clarity of thought now, because I've prepared for this over and over again, to look at my watch and realise, okay, how late am I? Because the moment I've got past the point of realising that there is no way I can get there on time, takes away all the stress for me. All right, I've missed that appointment, I've missed it, I now need to deal with that. But there's no point in me running around, scrabbling around, barging people out the way, getting stressed and shouting at people, because it's not gonna change the fact that I'm late. If there's still a chance for me to get there on time, obviously I'll go through the motions of trying to speed things up, trying to get through the scenarios that I can to get to still get to my appointment on time. But because I've prepared many of those, I've left myself enough time so that even with waking up late, there's still a chance that I can still make it. But the moment I can't make it, for me, the stress is gone. And that's something that I've been able to train for, I've practiced for over the years. I've been able to tell my mind what things I should be getting stressed over and what I shouldn't. When I went through the whole pit stop scenario, I talked about my first pit stop, the panic, the stress, the pressure that I was under almost crippled me in that moment. The reality as we go through life, and this is one of the things that the McLaren Lab program began to teach me and other scenarios as well later in that period, which I'll talk about in a moment. One of the things that I realized was that a lot of the experiences that trigger stressful or panic or high pressure situations for people are the same scenarios that can actually trigger a very different response like excitement. If you think about what, you, what happens to you when you face this high pressure situation. Your heart rate rises, you clam up a little bit, you start to sweat maybe, you start to, start to not think as clearly as you, as you should. 
same responses to being massively excited about something. And what I realised, and this was still true to the very last day that I did my final pit stop after 10 years at McLaren, the last pit stop I ever did, I still had all of those responses, and yet this time I told myself that that was excitement. And of course that becomes much easier to do when you've been doing something for 10 years, the nerves don't necessarily apply to the same extent. But it was exactly the same actions that I had to go through as I had to go through my first day. It was exactly the same emotional triggers that I faced. Still millions of people watching, still intense time pressure, still a whole bunch of people in my team relying on me to do my job to perfection. Nothing changed in that scenario. The only thing that changed was the way that my brain interpreted those triggers. And that is absolutely something that we can have an element of control over by practicing. And it sounds crazy, but constantly telling yourself that what you're feeling is excitement rather than nerves or high pressure in a moment like that. I knew I was excited about pit stop. It's what I dreamt of for years. Moments like that should be full of excitement. The truth is, if we go and start a first day at a new job, it can be terrifyingly nerve wracking for many people. First day at a new school for kids. It's also really exciting. It's the beginning of a brand new adventure. There's nothing much more exciting than that. But we often lose that sense of excitement because it's clouded by what our brain tells us is high pressure, stress, nerves. Constantly reminding yourself in advance in the simple form of talking to yourself can help with that process can completely or constantly reaffirm that what you're going to feel in that moment is a sense of excitement about what's to come. And that can change the response that your brain gives in those situations. One of the things that the McLaren Lab program did for us over the years that I was there was we began a program where at the end of every season we would go to the Finnish Olympic Institute. Uh, out in deepest, darkest Finland. It was where the Finnish Olympic programme was run from. It's a place called Quartenay. And we'd go there as a race team for a week of team building, but also a full week of biometric testing, uh, where they looked in absolute detail at our body shape, at our body profile, our strengths and weaknesses, created a bespoke training programme, physical training programme for the roles in the pit stop that we were doing. The drivers were all part of this too training us for the exact muscles or the exact roles that we were having to conduct in a pit stop, making sure that we were as best prepared for that physically as we possibly could. Partly to be better at our jobs, but also to mitigate against injury. If you're lifting a heavy tire off, for example, you train those muscles that you need for that role. It was a really highly scientific program. But as part of that, we had access to a whole host of Olympic coaches and a range of different disciplines. I took total advantage of those weeks by spending time talking to the Olympic coaches for 10-pin bowling, for cross-country skiing, for archery, for shooting, for every discipline that I could, swimming. I went and I spoke and I spent time trying to understand how they prepared their various athletes for that discipline and what we could learn from that. Because teaching an Olympic swimmer how to swim fast, how to win gold medals, is not just about teaching them how to swim. In fact, the reality is, teaching a swimmer how to swim is a tiny part of what leads on to becoming an Olympic gold medalist. And actually, by the time somebody becomes part of an Olympic team, they already know very well how to swim. What they taught them at Courtenay was a huge part of the mental approach, a part of understanding how to get that last 10%, 5% out of them as a human that could be the difference between them winning that gold medal or coming second, third or beyond. And those were the bits that I found most fascinating. And the reason I'm telling you this is because there was a huge element of what they taught me over those weeks about dealing with pressure. And one of the things that really struck me was how people can prepare for those stressful moments. If you think about an Olympic athlete, when they're on the start line waiting to take part in this huge event that they spent four years preparing for, and it might all come down to a couple of lengths of the pool, 
going as fast as they can, but up against another group of people who've also spent four years training to be the very best they can. There are potentially millions of people watching in that moment. And one of the things they said to me was that these people who are all incredible swimmers and you know have the best physical ability they can have, they've trained hard, it's quite often the mental barriers of pressure that stop them from going across the, the final hurdle, from getting that gold medal. And equally, it can be breaking down those mental barriers of pressure on the moment, on the day, that can be the difference between them getting the gold medal. And that's what they taught them at Quartenay more than anything else. And one of the things they said was, for example, when you're facing that moment as an Olympic athlete and the gun's about to go off and you're about to launch into your, your swim, however many lengths it might be, with the world watching on, of course, what can happen is people can get a better start than you, for example, right at the very beginning of the race. That's the beginning of this event that you've trained for for four years. And in the first half a second, someone next to you in the lane next to you can get a better start. Now, in that moment, your brain can tell you, oh my goodness, it's all over. How on earth can I possibly recover from that? You can start to think about the millions of people watching, your trainer, your family, your friends watching back home. I know this because I felt all of those things in my first pit stop. I began playing through scenarios of the people watching, of my friends back home, that I told them what my new job was, putting on the nose cone in this McLaren pit stop. And in a moment when I should have been solely 100% focused on my job to do it to the best of my ability, my mind was wandering off thinking about other things. And in an Olympic situation, when that pressure is so great, that's exactly what can happen. And what they were training athletes to do in that situation is to, because it's of course very hard to train for the moment when the big event happens, because the only time that happens is when the big event happens. But what they were saying was that it is absolutely possible to train for those scenarios, a little bit like I said with the pit stops. If you can train to deal with pressure, when the big moment happens and that pressure is real, your brain, your mind is better prepared to deal with that scenario. The way they described it was visualization. So in, for example, in a, in a sprint race in the swimming pool, standing on the blocks at the start of the, the head of the lane, visualizing what you're about to do, visualizing the perfect swim up and down. And when the stress kicks in and when you're standing up on that moment and all goes silent and people around the pool are starting to clap or cheer for one of your rivals, or in that moment when your rival gets that slight half a second jump on you as the gun goes off, what are you going to do? Are you going to collapse and capitulate? capitulate? Are you going to give up? Is your mind going to wander off thinking about those things? Or are you going to train your mind to block all of that out and focus on your job. The way you train for that and the way they taught us to train for that is why dealing with the high pressure situations in our daily lives in the same way. They said to us, look, if you're driving to work, and this is what they taught their athletes, if you're driving to work in the car and someone cuts you up, and they were doing this for a year before the event, if someone cuts you up at a junction, perhaps a stressful situation for some people, Take a moment, find something that you can trigger to focus yourself back onto a positive mindset. So for them, for example, they would visualize the perfect swim, the perfect laps up and down the, the pool. And when someone cuts you up at a junction, instead of letting your heart rate rise, your blood pressure boil and start to shout back and jump on the horn, you immediately switch back into that visualization of the perfect start of your race or the perfect swim, whatever it might be. And over and over again, every single day in moments of stress, and they might be the tiniest little triggers throughout your day, you revert back to that visualization of the perfect launch or the perfect swim. And what happens is when you get to that situation over months and months and months of preparing yourself for that, you become better at doing it. You become you don't have to think about it, it becomes a natural response to any stressful situation. And so when you're on the start line and somebody 
gets the jump on you as they launch when the gun goes off into the pool, you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about visualising the perfect swim, exactly what the perfect stroke is. What are you going to do when you get to the end of the pool, that perfect tuck turn? Those moments have been prepared for over and over and over again. And they taught us to do exactly the same thing and our drivers. Same thing in a race start. If something goes wrong, what are you going to do? The truth was, and this was something that opened my eyes a little bit, your brain can only ever think of one thing at a time. I know we all like to think we can do more than one thing. We can do more than one thing, but we can only think about one thing at any given moment. So if you're faced with a stressful situation, its natural tendency is to go off and think about those stresses, those pressures. Think about the, what it interprets as the reasons for those pressures, the people watching, the time pressure that you're under. But if you train your mind in a stressful situation to revert instantly to something that's focused on whatever it is you're trying to achieve. For us, achieving that perfect pit stop, focusing on the motions that we had to go through. You don't need to think about that in the moment. Again, the decision has been taken away from you. Your brain reverts to that scenario instantly, subconsciously, without you having to make a decision. And it takes time, but that was what they taught us to do. From a driver perspective, the same thing. When you're in a high pressure situation, have a trigger that reverts you back to a scenario that you've practiced, a focus, a visualization that you've gone over and over and over again. Today, I've sort of adapted that because I'm no longer doing the pit stops. I have this breathing technique, which I know sounds all very hippie, but it's true. And it's something that was taught to me back at Courtenay. And actually for me, and you can do this in any way, it's just a form of mindfulness. What they taught me at Courtenay was to practice some form of breathing and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be visualizing a stone in your hand or it can be focusing on each breath as it goes in and out. For me, it was taking a deep breath, starting to, as the breath ex exhales, starting to close your eyes and imagine your whole body getting heavy. From the top of your head, your eyelids getting heavy, your nose, your lips, everything relaxing as you breathe out. And with each breath, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Now, I, I know I sound like a right hippie, but this scenario has absolutely helped me to, in a stressful situation, revert back to that. Close my eyes for a moment, a couple of deep breaths, weighing down my eyelids, my face, my you know every muscle in my body, gradually all the way down to my toes, focusing on each part of my body getting heavy and relaxing completely. I've done this so often now that today, when it began, I used to go through that process and it used to take me 30 seconds or a minute of constant deep breaths in and out. Today, I can take one breath, I can exhale, and the whole lot just disappears. The stress goes to some extent. It's not a perfect scenario, but I found a mechanism that enables me in a scenario that I'm gonna find stressful or difficult to cope with, to switch that trigger on and revert back to something that enables me to take complete focus. Because my mind can only think of one thing, if I focus it on that, I can't be thinking about the stresses. I can't be thinking about the fact that I'm late. I can't be thinking about the time pressures or the people watching or whatever it is that I'm doing in that, in that scenario. It is something that Olympic athletes, elite level athletes use to create the differences between them and the people that don't quite succeed. If it's good enough for them, it's definitely good enough for me. I used that over years, yes, to improve what I was doing in terms of Formula One, in terms of the, the, the pressures that I faced on a daily basis, on a weekendly basis, in terms of the, the race scenario. But now I use it every single day of my life. I use it to cope with pressures that I didn't even know might trigger me. The ones that I haven't been able to prepare for, I'm still prepared because I can instantly revert back to this coping mechanism that allows me to just alleviate that stress for a moment by focusing back on this breathing technique. I encourage you to give it a go or something similar. It's just whatever works for you. And that's what I said before. This is an individual program. But if we can find a way to remove pressures, we stop ourselves from making those clouded decisions that end up being poorly focused, that end up being bad decisions, that then end up being 
poor performance. Poor performance is not going to enable us to succeed. It's not going to allow us to get that job in an interview. It's not going to allow us to deliver something at work that we need to deliver on time to the best of our ability. It's not going to allow us to portray the best version of ourselves in a high pressure scenario. Whether that is a job interview or something similar, meeting a client that you're hoping to entice into your business, whether it's meeting someone on a romantic level, forming a relationship. There are so many scenarios where high pressure can be seen as something that can ruin the situation for us, that can affect the way we deal with it. And it does. But the truth is we can train and prepare for that to enable us to deal with those moments better. And if we all manage to find a way to do that, we will be more successful. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. Those were some things that I learned directly from my time in Formula One, and yet are things that have absolutely transformed my life and still continue to transform my life today. I can't overstate the impact that some of those techniques have had for me and have led directly to some more successful situations. A lot of what I do now since leaving the team is around public speaking. I can't tell you how terrified I was the first time I was asked to get up on stage and talk about some of my experiences. I was shaking like a leaf. It was like that first day in the pit lane looking at my first ever pit stop. But using these techniques enabled me to very quickly get a handle on it to the point where not very far into that journey of public speaking and going into businesses, huge businesses that are hugely successful in their own right and little old me coming along to impart some of my lessons from Formula One to them. That's a daunting experience but I was able to use those techniques to very quickly turn those moments into exciting moments for me. Moments that I was looking forward to almost. I now stand backstage as they're announcing me to come on no longer shaking with fear but almost sometimes shaking with excitement. I bounce onto the stage full of positive energy. And when I look at some of the videos of my more recent talks compared to some of my early ones, it's very, very obvious that I'm now enjoying that, that I've turned those feelings into excitement. So do give it a try. Believe me, I can tell you that it works. Um, the one thing I wanted to also just add to today's episode was that dealing with those high pressure situations obviously starts at home. It starts with us because we're the first person that we can have some control over our reactions to some of those moments in life. But also, once we've mastered that, once we've been able to enable ourselves to control those moments better, to remain calmer, to remain slightly more clear-headed and more focused in those situations, we can also help others to do the same. And one little example, one little story that I wanted to leave you with this week on that very subject was a story that some of you may know from my book, uh, The Mechanic. There was a, a moment in 2007 when I had to step in to run Lewis Hamilton's car. That year I wasn't associated to one car or the other, I was actually in a role in the centre of the garage in the middle. But that weekend, it was uh, in Germany, 2007, uh, Lewis Hamilton's number one mechanic was away for the weekend doing something and I had to step in and lead that team. And there was a moment, it was, you may remember it, on the, on the Saturday in qualifying, Lewis crashed. We had a disaster. It was a terrible weekend. We got to race day. It was a race where rain affected. It was a slippery track, terrible conditions. And you might remember that everyone kept spinning off into a gravel trap that day. Lewis, in that moment, during the Grand Prix, where we were struggling anyway, span off into a gravel trap, got beached. But he kept the engine running. And back in those days, it was allowed for a crane to come on and pick the car up at the roll hoop and drop it back onto the racetrack. Now Lewis had kept the engine running, he'd stayed strapped into the car. When the crane lifted him back onto the circuit, he drove his way right back round to the start. And when they red flagged the race, which they did just after that moment, he was able to join us right back on the grid and we were able to prepare for the restart of the race. Something that after that race, that rule was changed and became no longer allowed. But in that scenario, we're now faced with a situation where we're back on the grid. 
pouring down with rain. We're in a terrible position in our race. However, we've been granted a second chance because we're still in the race and lots of people have already spun off and crashed. So there's an opportunity for us to maybe grab something out of it. And bear in mind, we're in a season here where we're in a championship fight. This could be, it was Lewis's rookie year, and yet he was in a position where he could potentially win the world title. The pressure in that moment was pretty big to make sure we got everything right. We didn't want this to be the race that derailed the championship challenge. So we're on the grid, we're preparing for the restart. Part of that procedure is you get the guy at the back of the car to put the external starter in to start the car up, fire it up and warm the engine up. Formula One engines are very temperature sensitive. They have to be kept within a temperature window to enable them to operate. And of course, we've got time ticking away before the restart is upon us. So at the prepared moment, I look over to the gearbox guy at the back of the car, I give him the nod, give him the thumbs up, and that's his signal to jam the starter probe inside the back of the gearbox, turn the car over and start it up. So he disappears down behind the rear wing with his starter probe in hand, and immediately pops back up again with a face that was almost ghostly white. He was terrified, there was fear across his face. There was something very, very wrong. He got on the radio onto our mechanics channel and explained that there were some stones, some gravel from when Lewis had had an excursion into the gravel trap wedged up the starter tube that went through the back of the floor into the gearbox, preventing the starter the external starter motor from engaging in the gearbox and starting the car. Okay, not a major drama. I said to him, okay, do what you need to do, get the stones out, get some tools. I'll call the guys back at the garage and get them to bring some tools over. We'll scoop the stones out. And off they went into that process. But very quickly, it became clear that those stones were not coming out. We got most out, but there were still some. And it only took one little stone, one piece of gravel that would be enough to prevent that starter engaging in the gearbox and without it, we simply couldn't start the car. Now, as time went on, the situation is becoming more and more serious because the temperature of the, of the engine is dropping down to critical limits. When it drops below a certain limit, we simply cannot start it. In the garage scenario, you'd connect up an external heater to warm the engine back up before you're even allowed to turn it over. Clearances and tolerances are so tight. We're approaching that moment where we simply cannot start the engine and we will not take part in this race. Lewis Hamilton, meanwhile, is sat inside that car, blissfully unaware of all of this drama going on behind a couple of meters behind where he sat. One of my roles in that scenario was as people began to start panicking and realize the severity of the situation, as leader of that team, I had a role in which one of my responsibilities was to project my calmness my ability to control the stresses and the pressures of that moment, project that calmness onto the people around me, none more so than Lewis Hamilton. One of my roles was to make sure that Lewis Hamilton can remain focused on his job, which is getting this car off this grid in the fastest possible, possible way when the lights go out, into the race and getting it to the end of that race in the quickest possible, uh, possible way he can. He can only do that if he's 100% focused. The people around the back end of the car, the other mechanics, can only go through their procedures if they are focused on doing them and not being distracted by this drama that's unfolding in the back of the gearbox. And so what I had to do in that scenario is go through a process of talking to everybody, explaining what's happening to the people on my mechanic channel around the car, but even more so to the people in the garage over the airwaves, explaining in very calm, clear tones, without any panic in my voice, what's happening, what we need people to do, mobilizing people from the garage to bring the correct equipment and tools to us, but all the while keeping calm and reserved. And on top of all of that, I had to do exactly the same with Lewis. I had to talk to Lewis in exactly the same way that I would if everything was perfectly normal. I had to talk him through the procedures as the clocks ticked down. I had to go through the procedure of checking the brake pedal, making sure he's strapped in okay, making sure his mirrors are okay, talking through how long we've got left on the countdown towards the restart. Everything that we would do as normal, keeping everything calm and controlled. Because whilst I was pretty good in that scenario, I'd by that point in my career, I'd become developed enough 
at the skills that I talked about with you earlier in that podcast, I was able to do that. But now I was able to share that with the people around me. And it was super critical that I was able to do that because in the end, the story ends by somebody in the last moment managing to get that final piece of gravel out of the starter tube, get the starter back into the gearbox and get the engine fired up. And all the while, Lewis Hamilton remained completely unaware and able to solely focus on his job. And I know that in that moment, I played a crucial role in that by projecting my calmness, projecting my control of the situation onto the people around me. If we can develop the skills that I've talked about using the methods that I learnt through my time at Quartenay, at that Finnish Olympic Institute, through the McLaren lab, things that have been instilled in me over many years. If we can all begin to learn some of those techniques, they can not only help us, but they can help the people around us to an extent that we can't even predict right now. I pass this on to my children. I help my wife in situations when she might become stressed and she's able to do the same to me. You can do it with teams at work. You can use that power to affect a whole number of people because not everybody has those skills and they are transferable. I hope what I'm doing today is transferring some of those to you and I would love to know if you're able to make them work for you and in what scenarios. Please do let me know at some point in the future if you ever fall back onto some of these things that I've told you today. I want to leave you this week before we go with a brilliant message that I received this week. It's a thread that somebody sent me. You may have seen this because I did retweet it on Twitter, but I thought it was just such a a feel-good story and it was directly related to this podcast. It came from Dev on Twitter and I will leave you this one. It says, "Uh, Hi Elvis, I just got done watching your latest episode of the podcast on failure. After a year-long process, I'll be starting my job in F1 with Mercedes F1 in September. I've experienced my fair share of failures and got denied by Mercedes F1 themselves last year. I was a cocky kid and I thought I could breeze past any interview stages and get my foot into F1 and how wrong was I? After multiple stages and four month long interview process, I got denied by my dream team for my dream job in F1. I learned a lot about myself, the reasons why I'd failed. And I ripped apart every single detail on how I failed and how I can improve. The preparation I did to apply for Mercedes again was tenfold, almost an insanity level of analysing. A couple of months go by and here I am having secured my dream job for my dream team and have a career in F1 for which I longed for. The result of all of this. In the words of my interviewer, for when I got the call saying I'd got the job, He said, I was the best candidate that they've seen in my seven years of working at Mercedes. Without failure, I would have never, ever got on the job. What an amazing story. Dev, congratulations to you. I hope you do have a long and brilliant career in Formula One. And thank you so much for sharing that uh, with me and with all uh, all of us. Moments like that, stories like that are why I do this podcast. And It just fills me with so much joy that people are taking some of these lessons away and applying them to their lives. And that story from Dev there is a brilliant example of turning failure into success because of the way that they reacted to that initial failure. And today's podcast is exactly the same. We will always face stresses and strains and pressures in our life. It's it's inevitable. We will always face failures. The important thing is how we react to those moments. And it's those reactions that will set us aside from the competition. If we want to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be, if we want to succeed where others may not, if we want to get to the top of the pile in whatever industry or field we're working in or operating in, our reactions to the difficult moments in life are what really matter. I really hope you guys enjoyed that one, have taken something away. Thank you so much again for listening or watching. Please, if you don't mind, leave me a rating and a review in the podcast store. Drop me a message wherever, on any platform. Just drop me a message using hashtag pitlanelifelessons. And if you could do me one favour this week, it would be to share this podcast with somebody that you know. Drop them a link on your social media channels. Share it around. Just tell somebody in your family, in your workplace, to go and give it a listen. And I would be 
Truly, truly grateful. Thank you again to Omologato Watches for their support on this journey with Pit Lane Life Lessons. As I said at the beginning, please do go check out their website, omologatowatches.com, and I'd love to know what you think of it. I'd love to know what your favourite watch is. Drop me a note on that too. Have a wonderful week, folk, folks, and I will be back in seven days' time next Wednesday morning with another episode. See you later.